there's a common theme that's the plot line of many books or movies or TV shows where it is the person who had lived a life of crime but has now reformed and there's always that tension of whether that person's going to return to that life of crime, right? There's a part of us that just expects that the person's going to fail and go back to their old way of living and there's a part of us that hopes that they've actually changed, right? The same is true in our lives in terms of our relationship to sin. There's this constant struggle of, am I done with sin or do I go back to it? Am I a new creature in Christ or do I return to the old way of living before I knew Christ? And so often we find ourselves going back to old ways of thinking and wanting and doing, perhaps because we haven't seen how bad our sin is, perhaps because we ignore the fact that we belong to God now, not to ourselves and certainly not to Satan to serve him. In Leviticus 17, God gives specific commands to the Israelites so they would not go back to the demon worship and pagan rituals involving blood that they apparently had learned during their time in Egypt. And so they could no longer give their bodies in perverse rituals to goat demons. Now they were covenanted to God. To go back to those sorts of demon-worshipping rituals would be both potentially physical and spiritual adultery. They could no longer eat blood or use it in pagan sorts of rituals, as we might think of various satanic rituals even in our day. Instead, blood was reserved for God because it was life, life which someday would be poured out in the person of Jesus Christ to finally deal with sin. In fact, even at this point in Israel's history, they were to see that their very lives belonged to God. They were to worship Him, not demons. They were to come near through His sacrifice, not various pagan rites of their own imaginations. And so from Leviticus 17, let's explore this idea that life belongs to God. The first thing we see from the, the first half of this chapter is this idea that we are to worship God, not demons. We're to worship God, not demons. Worship is not private, and it is not personalized. What I mean by that is, it's not private. It's not just me and God by ourselves hanging out, right? And it's not personalized. However I want to think about God, that's the way that I worship Him. Where do we see this in the chapter? Well, the Israelites were supposed to bring sacrifices to God's appointed place. Verse 5, bring them to the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. So it wasn't a thing where they could say, hey, you know what? I'm just going to go sacrifice. I'm out in the field. I got my flock out here. I'm going to sacrifice the animal here. This place is as good as any. And so now, you know, I've, I've done what God requires. Instead, when they were making sacrifices, the context of the passage says, so that they would bring their sacrifices to the, the tabernacle, the appointed place that God had given them. This issue with private worship comes up later in Israel's history. For example, in the book of Judges, uh, chapter 17, there is a man named Micah, and there's a man, another man of the tribe of the Levites who's just wandering past, and Micah says, hey, who are you, where are you going? He says, I'm a Levite, I'm looking for a place to stay. Micah says, hey, you can come and you can be my priest who lives in my house, and we'll do our own little worship thing, and that'll be good. And God will bless me, because now I not only have a priest, but I have a Levite for a priest, so clearly that's what God wants, despite the fact that God had said, 
the Levites were supposed to serve at the tabernacle, and despite the fact that God had said they weren't supposed to just be in people's houses, being their individual priests, the Israelites at that point, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, having private worship, etc. Now, how does that apply for today? There is a sense, certainly, in which a family can worship God together at home. However, this is not a substitute for gathering with God's people. And I think that's an important thing because in our day there have been people who have overreacted to churches which are not following God's word well. So they said, well, you know, there's, I can't find a good church, so it's just going to be me and my family. We're going to worship God together. There are certain things that God expects in worship that cannot be done in a single family unit. So when we take the verse, two or three are gathered together in my name, I don't think he has in mind just two or three in a family household off by themselves doing their own thing. This also means that it can't just be, you know what, I'm going to you know, watch a service on TV or listen to something on the radio, and that is exactly the same as gathering with God's people. Now, I will grant that there are times when, for reason of weather, for reason of sickness, uh, other factors like that, there are reasonable excuses where we cannot gather with God's people. And so, I'm not, um, I'm not trying to be hard on people who have a legitimate reason not to be gathered with God's people. I would very much be saying that someone who is able-bodied and has the capacity to gather with God's people and says, I don't want to bother, I'm just going to sit at home, that person is following the bad example of the Israelites here from this passage. But it wasn't just private worship, but it's also corrupted or personalized worship. We see this here in this passage that uh, they were worshiping not God, but demons. Verse 7. And God says, no longer sacrifice to them, but to God instead. We'll talk more about that here a little bit later. This comes up also again later in Israel's history. Remember the story of Jeroboam? Jeroboam's the king who leads the northern tribes of Israel away from the southern tribes of Israel. A judgment which God told David would happen. A judgment which came on Solomon's descendants because of Solomon's own sin. God said it was going to happen, but Jeroboam was still guilty because he led the people of Israel away from worship at the tabernacle in the place that God has appointed to worship in Samaria. That's where the Samaritans come from many generations later. That's why the woman at the well asked the question, what mountain are we supposed to worship on? How's worship of God supposed to look? Jeroboam, centuries before, had led the northern tribes of Israel away from worshiping God at the place of his choosing in the way that he had set out for them and instead said, all right, we're going to worship God our own way. And because he didn't want them to go back to worshiping God, what does he do? He sets up idols for them, goat idols and uh, bull idols. And those are the idols. And he says, we're going to worship God by means of these idols. And he substitutes a corrupted form of worship. What about for us today? What is our worship supposed to look like? We are to gather as God's people to fellowship with Him and with one another according to His guidelines. Why do I say with Him? Because it says in verse 4, to pre present it as an offering before the Lord. And then, why do I say with one another? Because verse 5, they are to sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. 
But the peace offering was the one offering that the person who was bringing it shares with the Levite and shares with God. And so there's this opportunity for fellowship that if you go off and sacrifice your sheep or your goat or your cow off in the field by yourself, you're cutting yourself off from that opportunity of fellowship with God and with God's people. And God said, don't do that. What are we supposed to do today? Well, the Bible says we are to read our Bibles. We are to meditate on God's Word privately, right? I think we, we, we would see that as a principle of Scripture. At the very least, the meditation would be a command, and the reading it regularly would be a reasonable and appropriate application given how much access we have to God's Word, given our desire to grow closer to God, given all of the blessings that we have. You know, think about the early church. They wouldn't have had copies of the Bible at their house, but they would have been meditating on God's Word. They were also potentially gathering, at least in the early stages of the book of Acts, every day, hearing God's Word read, thinking about it. Hearing God's Word read, thinking about it, right? And so we should be constantly meditating on God's Word on our own, but we should also be gathering to hear the Bible read publicly. Uh, 1 Timothy 4, Paul tells Timothy, give attention to the public reading of Scripture. Why do we have a Scripture reading? On Sunday morning. It's not just to fill time. It's because it's one of the things that God says that we're supposed to do. As important, if not potentially even more important, than me giving you this sermon. I'm not saying the sermon is not important, but I'm saying in terms of things that are specifically commanded, we see lots of examples of people giving sermons in the New Testament, but the public reading of Scripture, if we had to say, what are the bare bones things we have to have in the service, public reading of Scripture is one of them. What's another one of them? Certainly, we are to pray in private. We see this in the example of the life of Jesus. We see this all throughout the pattern of both the Old and New Testaments. But there is also supposed to be public prayer. 1 Timothy 2, Paul says, I want men in every place, lifting up holy hands before the Lord, leading in prayer. And so we ought to have public prayer, public reading of Scripture. We are to sing praise to God. We see the example of David. David does this while he's shepherding his sheep, while he's going back and forth in the wilderness. I mean, he wrote all of these psalms, not necessarily in the context of worship in the tabernacle, but while he's just out and about in daily life, right? And so there's a place for worshiping God in song, outwardly or in our minds, by ourselves, right? But there is also an important and a commanded place for encouraging and admonishing one another, for praising God as we gather together. Colossians 3.16, Ephesians 5.18 and 19. We're familiar with these passages as well. And then even beyond that, God has given all of us different skills and abilities and all these sorts of things. And yes, we should use those in the context of our families. Yes, we should serve one another at home. But we cannot do the things that God commands, all of the one another ministries, empowered by the gifts that the Spirit has given, if we come to church and think that our coming to church consists of coming, sitting in the pew, leaving at the end of the service. Now, not everyone is super outgoing and loves to talk and all those sorts of things. So I'm not saying everyone is gifted in the same way. Not everyone is gifted to encourage people. Not everyone is gifted to show generosity to people. Not everyone is gifted to serve people in particular ways. The point is not that we have the same gifts and that our service looks exactly the same. The point is that we're all serving in the ways that God has gifted us, right? 
You walk up to somebody, you encourage them with a passage of Scripture that God has encouraged you with this week. You hear about a need, you go try to meet that need during the week. You um, know that someone is struggling with something or needs encouragement, you pray fervently for that person. All of us are to be using the spiritual gifts that God has given us to serve one another in connection with the church. There's lots of other things that churches can do, right? Churches can have a youth group. Churches can have Sunday school class. Churches can have, you know, different programs, whether it be a music program or they might present some kind of a play or something like that, right? And those things aren't automatically sinful or bad, but if we say, what's at the core of what the church has to be and do in terms of worship? Public attention to God's word, prayer, using spiritual gifts, singing praise to God, observing the ordinances of remembering Christ's death, and uh, baptizing people into the assembly of the church. These are the basic things that God has called us to do as a church. And so those are the things that we must do and not substitute other things in place of that. So worship is not private. It's not me at home by myself. It's not personalized. It's not me saying, I like these things about church, but I don't like these things, so I'm just going to skip the parts I don't like. Worship is also not taking anything besides or in place of the one true God. That is, as we see from this passage, spiritual adultery. Sometimes there's a word that's used to describe this that's called syncretism, right? So when people took the idea of Christianity into various uh, pagan cultures, sometimes what would happen is this. People didn't make it clear Jesus is saying, me or your idols, me or your demons. And so the people that heard the presentation, sometimes a corrupted presentation of the gospel, sometimes a true presentation of the gospel, they heard Jesus plus all the things I already believe. Jesus is not plus all the things I already believe. Jesus is instead of all the things I already believe. And so we see that here in this passage. God is not willing to share his worship with any other gods. Think back to Exodus chapter 20 and verse 5. God says, I am a jealous God. You will worship me only, not all of these other gods that you worshiped before. Jesus says, even on a practical level, you can't serve two gods. You can't serve two masters, right? Think about his words, for example, in Matthew chapter 6. You can't serve God and money. You can't serve God and whatever else, right? Because you will love one and hate the other. You will love this one and, and reject the other. We might think that we can multitask when it comes to worship, but we can't. We are either worshiping God or worshiping something or someone else. We can't do both at the same time. And God does not accept worship of trying to do both at the same time. So what would the application of that be for us? I think we have to watch out for pagan ideas and practices and desires that are common in our society that because that's sort of the the air we breathe, the, the context in which we find ourselves, we might be tempted to bring those things into the church. There are many examples of what that might look like, but let me just highlight a few that I think I've observed maybe even in the past year in our culture around us that I see then coming into the church. One would be this attitude of fighting for your team to win. What did that look like in Bible times? It was about ethnicity or class, right? It was Jews versus Greeks in Acts 6. Not Jews versus Greeks, but Hebrew-speaking Jews versus Greek-speaking Jews. So they were all Jewish, but they spoke a different language. 
And so the ones that weren't the Hebrew Jews got neglected in the ministry of the early church to widows. And that created conflict. What else do we see? We see Jews versus Gentiles in Ephesians chapter 2. There's this wall, this barrier between the Jews and the Gentiles. Again, a barrier of ethnicity or a barrier of language, and those things then led to conflict. What does that look like today? Sometimes today it's tied to skin color. Are you black? Are you brown? Are you yellow? Are you white? Are you a mixed race of some kind? And, you know, this is my team, and my team's going to win, and anybody who doesn't look like me, anybody who's not on my team, forget them. I'm going to treat them with suspicion and with hatred and with whatever else. Now, I will grant that there are people who pretend and try to stir up hatred where it isn't, but I will also point out the fact that it is very easy for us, because of some of those efforts of people to stir up division, to look at people around us and start thinking that way. How is this person different from me? Why am I going to push them aside because of superficial differences, right? Instead of saying, there is one race, the human race, God made us all from one blood, that's what the Bible teaches in the story of creation, uh, this person is different from me in some way, so I'm going to push them aside. Sometimes it's not how we look, sometimes it's what we have, right? And again, I'm not arguing for the class warfare idea that there's this ongoing struggle between the haves and the have-nots and that if we just fix that, everything will be better. But there's a real big push in society and culture today to look down on people who have more or less than we do, right? This is not a new problem. Think about James chapter 2. You see a rich man come in who can get you good favors and position in society. Everybody swarms to that person and says, hey, I want to be your friend, right? And then you see the poor person come over here. Maybe their clothes are torn. and Maybe they haven't had opportunity to have a shower. And they just come in from working out in the field. And you say, I don't want anything to do. You go sit in the corner. I don't want anything to do with you. That's favoritism based on how we perceive people in terms of their position in society. That continues today. Think about the Corinthians. They were fighting over which spiritual leader was the best. Paul, Apollos, Peter, Jesus, right? What could that be for us today? Piper, MacArthur, some other person that you like to listen to. I'm not saying that it's bad to benefit from the ministry of various people, but if we start fighting because this person likes to listen to this spiritual teacher and this person likes to listen to this spiritual teacher, we become just like the world in the superficial things that we're fighting about. Maybe it's political parties. Now, political parties have platforms which either do or don't align with God. But none of the existing political parties have a platform that aligns exactly with what God has said. And so we need to be acknowledging that and not say that I want my team to win because I'm going to vote Republican or I'm going to vote Democrat or I'm going to vote Independent or I'm going to vote whatever third party else might be out there. That is not supposed to be the attitude that we bring into the church. It's not about this candidate or that candidate. This continues even to even smaller differences, right? What's the best way to approach nutrition, right? You say, well, Christians would never fight about that. 
People out in the world around us fight about the stupidest things possible. And the more that we spend time around people who are getting all hung up over this, it's like, what's the right way to raise your children? What's the right way to care for your pets? What's the right way to take care of your yard? What's the right way to... And the list goes on and people fight and they get at each other's throats and then we get all all hyped up about that and we bring it into the church and we create division in the church. That's an unbiblical attitude that says my team is going to win even if the team I'm on is a bunch of people I normally would have nothing to do with but they happen to agree with me about this thing right now and so we're on the same side right at the moment we're going to fight about anybody who's not on our side what unites people in the church what unites people in the church is a common connection with Jesus and allegiance to Jesus and that should be the thing that we focus on now can there be differences yes do we sometimes need to work through those differences yes but we cannot let this ungodly attitude that my team is going to win at all costs particularly when that is an unbiblical or extra biblical thing That can't be our focus. What else? Well, another unbiblical attitude that might creep into the church today is this idea of trusting man's wisdom over God's. This can take many forms, right? Today, the popular thing is to say, well, you know, believing science, that's what we need to do. We need to trust the science. Here's the problem. Science is an evolving consensus based on what people think at any given moment. Some people hold up science as though science has the answers to everything. And if you say science doesn't have the answers to everything, they're like, what? Because it's become their religion. Here's the problem with science. Science is a useful tool, but the tools of science are experiment and observation. And so science can only use those tools. You cannot observe or experiment on things that are on a vast scale like, where did the universe come from? Where is it going? You can make some kind of educated guess, but you don't have sufficient information to really say you've observed it, and you certainly can't go back and start over and say, well, maybe this is the way that it happened. Further, science cannot say, you must do blank, even though that's the way people talk about it in our society today, because science only describes what is and what might be working at the moment, It cannot, people act like it leads to ethical decisions. That's not true. So, you know, let me take a silly example. You have a dog, right? Why do you feed your dog instead of beat your dog? Well, science would say, if you feed your dog, your dog stays relatively healthy, assuming you don't feed it too much. If you give water to your dog, your dog continues to live. Your dog licks you in the face, you can pet your dog, everything is wonderful with you and your dog. From an evolutionary perspective, if that were true, survival of the fittest, why do you pet your dog instead of eat your dog? Science can't tell you, feed your dog, don't eat your dog. It can say, if you feed your dog, here's what will happen, but it can't say, and this is why you should do it. That's where science steps over into religion, steals from Christianity an ethic that says life is valuable, and then acts like it's its own discovery. And so we cannot adopt a pagan philosophy that says trust the current consensus about whatever, whatever the law says, whatever, the, whatever science says. Instead, we must go to the absolute truth of what God has said. Because that's what we're all ultimately borrowing from anyway. 
how does this sort of creep into the church? I mean, the science thing's kind of over here. How does this creep into the church? It creeps into the church because we say, just like science says, it works to feed your dog and your dog lives. We say, well, this seems to work to get people to come to our services. So let's do that. Whether or not it conflicts with the way God says we're supposed to do church. God says, in terms of doing church, pray, read God's word, think about what God has said, sing praise to God. If you're the average person who has no contact with church and someone says, we're going to go to church and we're going to sit there for an hour and we're going to sing a little bit and we're going to pray a little bit and somebody's going to talk about a book that's 2,000 years old, how excited are they going to be about that, right? If you say we're going to have a coffee shop and we're going to watch a movie and we're going to have some really cool music and it's going to be exciting and fun, that'll draw a lot more people in, right? I'm not saying church should be boring, right? If it's boring, it's possibly you're not paying attention. It's possible I've done a poor job preparing. So, I mean, there's a lot of factors in that, right? But we have to do what God has said to do, not what we think will get the most number of people excited about what we're doing. The gospel is not something where we can change the message, and this is what we're tempted to do, right? More people will say a prayer and be a part of our church if we change the message from Jesus says, turn away from your sin and follow me, if we change the message to God wants you to have a great life. Because God wants you to have a great life is something everybody wants to hear. And God wants you to stop living this way and do exactly what he says. Sounds a lot like what our parents wanted us to do when we were kids. And we're like, I don't know about that, right? Pagan philosophies creep into the church. We have to watch out for them. One last one here. And this ties into what was going on in Israel's day. There is a pagan philosophy that says anything that belongs to me is my choice, right? My body, my choice. My stuff, my choice. My life in general, my choice, right? This is a pagan philosophy. The Bible says, you belong to God, so serve God. He made you. If you're a believer, Christ has paid for your sins. You belong to Him twice, both by birth through creation and by salvation through the ministry of Jesus Christ. But the world says, no, my body is mine, I can do whatever I want with it. My stuff is mine, I can do whatever I want with it. How does that tie into the idolatry we see in this passage? The Israelites said, if we worship these demons, they'll give us what we want. And God says, no, you can't worship that, worship me instead. And so from this passage, we see that worship is to be of God, not of demons. It's not private or personalized. It's not God plus something else. How then are we supposed to worship God? According to this passage, we are to come near to God through the lifeblood of His sacrifice. We were singing songs this morning about this. We, if you've been at church for any length of time, sing them regularly enough that they don't seem strange to us. But if you had never heard any of the songs that we sang this morning, and you walked in and people are singing about blood and how it's amazing and what it can do, that would probably strike you as odd, right? But this passage explains why that's so important. It explains that blood, which is equated with life, is valuable and not to be taken lightly or used commonly. Now, I want to be careful here because there is an element of difference between 
what we see here and, and, and what we would practice today. So for example, if you or I go to Meyer, Kroger, or whatever and buy meat, we don't look to see if the meat has been according to the Jewish rituals, if it's kosher, or according to like Muslim rituals, if it's halal. We don't look at that and say, is this meat, does it meet this particular standard? We say, how much is it? Is it what I'm looking for, for what I'm trying to cook, right? Now, I think there's a balance where we should think about that a little bit more, but we should also feel like we are not bound to obey Leviticus, because God gave Leviticus to the Israelites, God has not given it to us. Now, there's a little bit of weight that I think we need to wrestle with from the perspective that this idea of life and blood being connected is not something that started with Leviticus. It goes way back to Genesis chapter 9, where God says, don't eat blood because life is in the blood, and the one who sheds blood by man shall his blood be shed. Now, that's primarily talking about human life, right? But the fact that it has implications for animal life and that God used the way that they treated animal life as a picture of how they were treating human life and to anticipate the ministry of Jesus' life is found, for example, in verse 13. It says, even when you go hunting, if you catch a beast or a bird which may be eaten, he shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. So even when they're hunting birds or other animals that were acceptable, that were clean, according to chapters 11 through 15, they were supposed to drain the blood from it and not eat the blood. Why? Because, verse 11 says, the blood was the life and it was given to them for spiritual purposes. It was to be devoted to God. This came up even later in the New Testament as well, where the Israelites, this is a fascinating thing. What were the commands that the Gentiles were given that they said, here's what we want you to do in the churches? You don't have to keep the whole law, but what are you supposed to do? Avoid immorality, which is both talked about in chapter 18, and which the sacrifices to the goat demons were probably take, taking place, immorality in connection with that. Don't do that anymore. Don't eat things that are dead or strangled, and don't eat blood. Why were those commands given to the early church, the Gentiles in the early church? I don't think it was simply to avoid offending Jewish believers, although that was a big part of it. I think there was a part of it where there was a continuity between Genesis 9, Leviticus 17, and what was being discussed in Acts 15. Now, I'm not prepared to take that to the extreme and say, if you eat something that doesn't have the blood drained from it today, you are sinning. But I do think it's something that is worth wrestling with, why there is this continuity from Genesis all the way to the book of Acts in people agreeing that this was something serious and to be taken soberly. Why was it to be taken seriously? I think the answer is found in verse 11 here of chapter 17. Blood binds you to God, we would say in the New Testament, to Jesus through an atoning sacrifice. Verse 11, The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your... This word could either be translated souls, the, the God breathed into him, he became a living soul, probably life. He became a living being, Right? So, the life of the flesh is in the blood. I've given you on the altar to make atonement for your lives, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. So, blood and life, life and blood, blood and life. What's the point here? There was a dealing with sin that took place when they sacrificed animals in the Old Testament, 
but it was a temporary dealing with sin. It was an actual dealing with sin, but it's a temporary one. And then there's a full and final dealing with sin in the life of Jesus Christ when he is put to death on the cross, which we sang about even this morning. What's the connection here? I think it is explained by Jesus' words in John 6. John 6, 53-59 is one of those passages that we tend to skip over because it's really puzzling what Jesus is saying here. But what does Jesus say? Well, Jesus has been talking in John 6 about how he is the bread of life right after he feeds the large crowds. And then, in a little bit later in the passage, there's this discussion with what do the people actually want? Do they want him to keep feeding them physically? Or do they want the message that he's giving, even himself? And then he says this really puzzling statement, verse 52, the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. So they hear that and they think, I'm a good Jew. I would never do that. How could you possibly ask me to do that? Because Leviticus 17 and all these other passages say, Don't eat blood or I'll be cut off from my people. I don't think Jesus is saying actually to eat the flesh of his body, the meat off his bones, and drink his blood. But there is a symbolism here. And what is it? When you eat or drink something, you take it into yourself. You're united with it in some way. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, you have to be united with me if you want the salvation, the eternal life that I'm offering. You need my life to be a part of you that you might have eternal life. Now, how does this take place? Not through some sort of cannibalistic or pagan ritual, but rather through the work of the Holy Spirit in uniting us with Jesus as we believe in and trust in Him. Now here's the contrast here of what's happening. He who eats my flesh, drinks my blood, has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Paul sets out for us an interesting contrast in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We can be united with Christ in terms of both symbolically and in the way that we partake of food, we can be united with Christ, or chapter 10, verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Not actual blood, but wine or juice that symbolizes Christ's blood when we observe the Lord's table. Is not the bread which we break? Again, not actual flesh. We're not eating meat. We're doing something symbolic at the Lord's table. Is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. 
And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? So we see those themes that we see in the Old Testament. God is a jealous God. God will not share his worship with anyone else. Don't worship demons, worship God. Even the way that you partake of food and the symbolism of the rituals that you follow connects you either with God or with demonic sacrifices and rituals. So here's the contrast. You must be united with the life of Jesus to have the eternal life that he offers. You cannot be united with demons, which brings in contrast to life, brings death to you. Listen to this at the end of the book of Revelation. I thought it was fascinating how all these things are linked together. So at the end of Revelation, it talks about those who aren't part of the beautiful city that God has brought down and all those sorts of things. And sometimes we're like, why did he pick these? These are just sort of random things that he picked. But listen to it. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable murderers, immoral persons, and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars... Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And then chapter 22, verse 15, outside of heaven are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. Why is that significant? Because what inevitably is linked in the worship of Satan, in the worship of demons... Lying, immorality, murder, sorcery, all of these sorts of things are linked together. So the book of Revelation is saying in the same way, if you want to part with God, you can't worship Satan. If you want to be united with Jesus, you can't be united with demons in pagan rituals. So just like God told the Israelites... You learned idolatry from the Egyptians, sometimes horrible and perverse idolatry, in which you united yourselves both spiritually and physically in acts of perversion and murders and all of these other sorts of things. You say, well, how does there any link to murder? A lot of the pagan gods required the sacrifice either of someone that you loved or even your own children in worship of that God. Later in the book of Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, they're forbidden from worshiping Molech. And Molech said, kill your babies and I'll give you more. The Baals, the Ashtoreth, all of these, give me some kind of sacrifice of your body, of the fruit of your children, of your crops, and I will give you more. They are bloody pagan sacrifices and rituals that God said to the Israelites, I don't want you to have any part of it. Why are all these rules about what is and isn't acceptable? Why could they not be involved in immorality or even in physical intercourse in the presence of God at the temple? Why did that make them unclean so they couldn't go to the tabernacle? Because God didn't want all the immorality associated with his worship. Why couldn't they kill people or kill animals just here, there, and everywhere? Because God wanted them to see that Life was in the blood, and the blood had a very specific and defined purpose, which was to unite them to God, to secure temporary atonement, looking to Christ's permanent atonement. It was not just something for them to do private rituals or rituals contrary to what God has established. It was something that was supposed to bind them to God, to one another, in the context 
of the boundaries that God had established for them. Where does this then lead us? Being united with Jesus in eternal life means that your life is His. It belongs to Him. Now there's a real sense in which this takes place in like Romans 6, where it says you're united with Christ because you've been united with His death and His resurrection. But I think even 1 Peter 1 makes this even a little bit clearer for us. And we read here in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes to those who reside as aliens or strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. And then a little bit later in that passage, he talks about the salvation that has been secured for them, and he says this, If you, verse 17, address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundations of the world but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. You have been united with Jesus by the blood of Christ if you are believing in him today. And being united with him means that you owe him your life. He is the source of your eternal life, and you are to serve him with your life and all that you are. Let's go back to what we said at the beginning. This idea that here's the person's old way of life, and now they've, you know, our culture would say turned over a new leaf or reformed or something. It's more than that. It's a transformation. It's a putting off of something old and putting on of something new. If that's taken place, what does that look like? Jesus is the bread of life symbolically and even actually in the book of John. He is the blood, the life given in place of sinners. So we have a choice. If we say we belong to Him and we know Him, are we going to receive Him as the bread of life? If we go back to idolatry, like God warned the Israelites about doing, you know what that's like? It's like the contrast between a fresh-baked loaf of bread and your cat or your dog just vomited on the floor, and you go scoop it up and you eat it. That's what our sin is like. You say, I don't agree with that image. Proverbs says, like a dog that returns to his vomit is the fool that goes back to his sin. You say, that's a horrible picture. Why would you mention that? Because we don't see how bad sin is, and we don't see how great what God has offered us is, and so we're like, sin's not a big deal. And just the repulsiveness of that image is not enough to keep us from sinning. We need God's help. We're in the midst of temptation. We've got to pray to God and ask Him for His help. We've got to read God's Word so we know what He says. We need to ask other people to pray with us when we're really struggling with sin. It's not as simple as just, sin is disgusting, so I'm not going to do it. Because here's the crazy thing. When we love sin, when we are 
I hesitate to use this word, but when we're addicted to sin, we know how disgusting it is, and we still keep eating it up. But by God's power, we don't have to live that old way anymore. We can be free to walk in newness of life, to consume Jesus as the bread of life, to have eternal life, so that His blood cleanses us from all sin. And so if you know Jesus, you have this new life. The old life is done. We must continue, and we have begun to cast it aside. And sometimes, again, sometimes we say, well, in this moment, it is, you know, my way, or it's God's way, and I could do one or the other, like either one, like they're equally good options, right? You know what the Bible says? The Bible says one is the way of life, And one is the way of eternal damnation and destruction. And God wants you to choose the way of life. So which road are you on? Which meal are you eating? Serve God. Your life belongs to Him. If you're trusting in Jesus. If you've never trusted in Jesus, turn to Him today that you might have life instead of death. That you might have joy instead of misery. But if you have turned to Him... You're His. You can't go back to this. And we're going to be tempted, and sometimes we will, and we have to come back to Him and say, forgive me. And He gives us that new life, and He continues to push us along this path of following after Him. Blood is life. You need the life of Jesus through the sacrifice of His blood that you might have eternal life and that you might live for Him now. Let's pray. Dear God, we look at a a passage like this one here, and there are many places at which we could go astray. Lord, I hope that as we've looked at this passage together, we have seen your truth in it. May it be that all of us here today share in the life that is offered through Jesus' sacrifice. May it be that we have eternal life and are aware of that and are continuing to seek after you and to, to... Partake of that life and not go back to the ways of death that you've saved us from. Lord, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.